All right. Good morning to you all. It's good to see you. Glad you could be here. And happy Mother's Day to everyone as well. We're going to be looking at um, Acts chapter 2 again. If you'd like to turn there. Acts chapter 2. And we'll apply it to our mothers, but it will have application to all of us in various ways. But we want to continue looking at what we've begun looking at over the last several weeks. We've been talking, as of last week, about devotion. The idea of what we're devoted to, which is a great question. What do you consider yourself to be truly devoted to? And last week I mentioned the fact that we're all devoted to eating. That's one of the things we're devoted to. And um, one of the things that you'll notice if you, if you travel to the South, people in the South are either eating or talking about eating. They're very, very devoted to food. And so you don't have to even question where their devotions lie, at least in that respect. But Mother's Day is a great day to talk about devotion as well because we tend to think of mothers as being incredibly devoted, as examples of devotion. And so I think it's very fitting that we continue talking about devotion in light of mothers. We see how the Bible celebrates motherhood, which was God's idea, in various ways. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Uh, Paul says, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And so that's the picture that we have of motherhood, uh, tender nursing care. Um, There's also a verse in Isaiah 49 where God talks about uh, the devotion of mothers in this way. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. So God says, You know, one of the greatest examples of those who are devoted are mothers. And it's entirely unlikely or uh, very unlikely that a mother is going to forget her nursing child. But even if that were to happen, God says, I will not forget you. And so uh, the call to motherhood is a um, great and wonderful and important call. And we should never minimize it, even though in our society it tends to be minimized greatly, unfortunately. There was a little girl that one day was uh, watching her mom cook, and she was looking at her mom's hair, and she noticed a few gray or white hairs sticking out. And uh, she said, Mom, uh, how come you have those white hairs? And the mother said, Well, honey... Um, Every time you do something wrong and make me cry or make me sad, I get a white hair. And the little girl thought for a few minutes and said, Mommy, why are all of Grandma's hairs white? (laughs) Well, if you think about that, that mother thought about that. She'd realize, okay, uh, maybe I need to identify with my little girl in terms of uh, I feel like she's giving me gray hair, and I also have given my own mom some gray hair, and so I think it makes us um, remember that we're all in the same boat in terms of being sinners who need a Savior, whether we're children or mothers or fathers or otherwise. And that's why it's very important to think about the kinds of things that the Bible talks about when it talks about motherhood, and we'll apply a lot of this to mothers today because it is Mother's Day, but it applies to all of us in various ways. There's a verse in Proverbs 31, which is often considered, you know, the, the chapter on uh, 
what it means to be a, a godly mother, a godly wife. And it says in verse 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Now we could take that teaching of kindness as simply something like what Ellen DeGeneres would say at the end of her show, uh, be kind. Um, but when the Bible talks about kindness and we've Look at it in 1 Corinthians 13, and we found out that kindness uh, is something that just doesn't come naturally. It's supernatural to be kind in the way that God calls us to be kind, in the way that God himself is kind. And therefore, that kind of teaching of kindness has to be connected to the kindness that God has shown us in Jesus. And so in Titus 1 it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared... He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so, um, as godly mothers... uh, You want to have the teaching of kindness on your tongue. But as Christian mothers, it's going to be a teaching of kindness that centers around the kindness of God in Jesus, which is the teaching of the apostles. And that's what we started looking at last week. And so in in Acts chapter 2, in verse 41, we find this account where it says, So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we started last week focusing focusing on verse 42, where it talks about the early church, that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. We've been talking about overall the idea of the Great Reset, which is something that It's being talked about in our world among world leaders, politicians, corporate leaders, and ultimately the kinds of things they're saying uh, have to do with the idea of bringing in a heaven on earth apart from God, and that's why one aspect of the Great Reset is about the rebellion of man, but the Bible does say that one day there will be heaven on earth, but it will result from the return of Jesus, and so that's the true Great Reset that is coming one day. But there's there's a personal reset, a personal reorientation of our lives, which is what the Bible calls repentance. And the Bible says God calls all men everywhere to repent, to turn to him for mercy and to entrust themselves to his son, Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 2, we are seeing what it looks like to live a life of repentance, as Martin Luther would call the Christian life. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to talk about a number of different things. The first thing we're talking about is the importance of being devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is the idea of communication. 
We're going to talk about communion, which is pursuing fellowship with God in public and in private. We'll talk about community, which is sharing our lives and our gifts with one one another in the body of Christ. We'll talk about compassion to those in need. And we'll talk about what I'm calling commonality, which is common grace roles, like roles in the family, like motherhood, fatherhood, those kinds of things, as well as the workplace and citizenship in the world and, and things like that. And so... In order to fulfill the commission that God has given the church, these are the things we have to embrace. And it's the same thing we need to do in order to endure whatever persecution might be coming our way in this country. Last week we started talking about why were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, because we live in a fallen world filled with lies. And the only thing that can protect us and rescue us from the lies is the truth of God. And that's what the apostles' teaching is all about. It's ultimately the truth of the Word of God as we see it in the Bible. And we want to talk, beginning today, about what is the Apostles' teaching. The uh, first point that I just want to highlight, I just want to kind of walk us through this. It's a little different than I normally do, but I just want to help you see this on the screen and think about it as we walk through it. And I want to apply it to current things going on in our country and apply it to our moms as well today. There's a lot you can say about what the Apostles' teaching is. And what I'm trying to do today is just to give you the heart of it, or at least to begin to do that, because in Acts 28, at the very end of the book of Acts, we have a summary of the Apostles' teaching when it says, and he, speaking of Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So there you have two things that are at the heart of the apostles' teaching. The proclamation of the kingdom of God, that there is even now a kingdom that rules and reigns over all things, and Jesus is the king, And one day there's going to be a kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven on earth. And the Lord Jesus is at the very heart of the issue of whether or not we're going to be in the kingdom or outside the kingdom forever. And so the first point that we can make about uh, what the heart of the apostles' teaching is, is to say this, that it begins with the idea of God sending his son. God sent his son, Jesus the God-man, to save us from sin and satisfy us in God forever. There's one verse that touches on this, John 3.16, which Brian read earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says later on in the book of Acts, Peter says, for you first God raised up his servant, speaking of Jesus, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, what are the implications of that one simple sentence? There is a God, there was a creation, there was a purpose, there was a problem. There was a problem that we could not fix on our own. God sent his son to fix the human problem And God sent his son to restore the human purpose. All of that is reflected in just that one sentence. 
It's interesting if you look at the book of John, if you read through the book of John, 41 times it's mentioned that the Father sent the Son. It's a major, major theme in the book of um, John that God sent his Son. And he didn't send his Son simply to commend us for the wonderful lives we're living. He sent his Son to fix a problem. And the problem is that we as fallen humans are not living according to the purpose that we were created. There would be no problem if there was no purpose. There is a problem when we do not live according to the purpose that God has called us to. So this kind of statement answers the the question, why is there something and not nothing? Because there is a God and he created us with a purpose but that purpose has gone awry. And that is a huge problem. And that's why Jesus was sent. And so if we think about this in terms of both uh, what's going on in our country today and in terms of what godly motherhood is to teach, a part of it, tell your children that they were created with a purpose, that they're not cosmic accidents, that they were created with a divine purpose. Now we might say, you know, why is that so important? Because in our day and time, uh, people don't believe that anymore. People don't believe that we were created by God, that we were created with a purpose. And therefore, what we have is we have people who are basically defining reality and defining right and wrong on their own terms. We live in a society that does not think it had... um, any significant beginning, and will not have any significant end. And therefore, what happens here is just a matter of pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. And that's really kind of what John Milton, when he wrote his epic 10,000-verse poem, um, Paradise Lost, back in the 1600s, he characterized what happened in the fall with Adam and Eve in terms of both the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of, or the avoidance of pain apart from God. He wrote this about Eve. So saying, her rash hand in evil hour, if you can kind of follow this kind of complex prose, forth reaching to the fruit, she plucked, she eat. Earth felt the wound, and nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe, that all was lost, Back to the thicket slunk the guilty serpent, and well might for Eve intent, now wholly on her taste, naught else regarded, such delight till then as seemed in fruit she never tasted, whether true or fancied so, through expectation high of knowledge, nor was Godhead from her thought. Greedily she engorged without restraint, and knew not eating death. Satiate at length and heightened as with wine, jocund and boon, thus to herself she pleasingly began to talk about her experience. He goes on from there. But basically, he's through this poem, he's talking about how Eve ate because she was pursuing delight, pursuing her pleasure through this forbidden fruit. She was pursuing the satisfaction of her soul apart from God. And then Adam finds out that she's done what she's done. She's eaten from the forbidden fruit. And 
uh, Milton describes what he says to Eve in light of that. He says to her, O fairest of creation, last and best of all God's works, creature in whom excelled, whatever can to sight or thought be found, holy, divine, good, amiable, or sweet, how art thou lost, how on a sudden lost, defaced, deflowered, and now to death devote? Rather, how hast thou yielded to transgress the strict forbiddance, how to violate the sacred fruit forbidden, Some cursed fraud of enemy has beguiled thee, yet unknown, and me with thee hath ruined. For with thee certain my resolution is to die. How can I live without thee? How forego thy sweet converse and love so dearly joined to live again in these wild woods forlorn? Should God create another Eve, And I another rib afford, yet loss of thee would never from my heart. No, no, I feel the link of nature draw me. Flesh of flesh, bone of my bone thou art. And from thy state, mine never shall be parted, bliss or woe. On one level, that sounds amazingly romantic. That he says, since you've eaten of the forbidden fruit, I'm going to eat too because I can't live without you. And yet, it was a huge rebellion against God. And so, what was Adam doing at that point? He was trying to avoid the pain of losing Eve. And so the point is, once we lose our focus on why God created us, we begin to live our lives in terms of avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure. And there are horrible and heinous things that people do when that is their only goal. Horrible and heinous things. And that's why it's so important that mothers, as well as all of us, uh, tell people, you were created with a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify and enjoy God. And to live for anything else does not make you more loving, it makes you incredibly unloving. You could say the second uh, thing that we can highlight with regard to the apostles' teaching is the life of Jesus. God sent Jesus in light of the need to deal with our failure, to fulfill our purpose, and the consequences of that. And so Jesus comes to live the life we can never live. What life is that? A life of perfect obedience, of perfect love. Romans 5 it says, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus came to live the life we could never live. Um, Someone has asked the question, uh, nobody's perfect, perfect, is that a problem? And God would say, it's a huge problem that nobody is perfect. And one of the things that mothers need to teach their children, along with fathers, is that there is a standard of right and wrong. We live in a culture, we live in a world today, where um, because we don't believe in God, then therefore we don't believe that there is a divine standard of right and wrong anymore. It's all about doing whatever is right in your own eyes. You can define your own right and wrong. Dennis Prager uh, talks about 
some surveys that people have done over the years with high school students. And he said over 15 years of asking high school students in America whether or not in an emergency situation they would save their dog or a stranger if they had to choose between the two, he said most of them said I would save my dog. And why would they say that? Because I know and love my dog. I don't know the stranger. But what is the problem with that? The problem is a failure to recognize how God values life. That all life isn't equal and it isn't simply based on what I think is the right thing to do or I feel is the right thing to do. It's about what God would say is the right thing to do. He comments on that and says, The feeling of love has supplanted God or religious principle as the moral guide for young people. What is right has been redefined in terms of what an individual feels. So if I feel like I ought to save my dog instead of this person created in the image of God, then for me, he would say, that's what people argue is the right thing to do. And yet the reality is, God says, no, that would not be the right thing to do. It matters that there is a standard of right and wrong. And Jesus came and lived in perfect obedience to that standard. And it's a standard that none of us have lived up to. And yet God requires it if we're going to enjoy heaven with him. Well, the consequences, and there are consequences of not living out that standard of perfect obedience and perfect love. And that's why not only did Jesus come to do what we've not done, but he came to die because of what we have done, because of our sin. So it says, uh, Jesus died the death we deserve to die, which we say all the time here, which means he took upon himself a just and divine wrath on the cross. In 1 Peter 3 it says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, it's really interesting in our day and time um, when we think about this, because, you know, one of the questions that this answers is, why did Jesus have to die? And people are beginning to answer that question in different ways, in ways that um, are become very prominent in our country that we would be maybe surprised by. Um, the Bible says our greatest problem is sin, and we need a Savior. And yet, there's a growing other gospel uh, that has been around for a long time, but it's becoming more and more prevalent in our own culture And that is what is called liberation theology. Liberation theology says the the basic problem is uh, that there are oppressors and oppressed. And that Jesus came as a revolutionary in order to deliver the oppressed from the oppressors. And there are those who would say to embrace what they would call a savior theology... The idea is that people are are all sinners and they need to be forgiven of their sins before a holy God 
to actually preach that and teach that is a racist thing to do. Because that gospel actually supports racism. So it doesn't deal with the real original sin, which is racism. And the oppression, oppression of, of minority, minority groups through the majority. And so, as a result, you've got this gospel that says, you know, it's not really about sin. And it's not about Jesus being a savior. It's about oppression and Jesus being a liberator. What does that do? Well, if the only goal is liberation, then you don't have to be concerned about sin. You don't have to be concerned about sinning in order to liberate because everything is justified in the pursuit of liberation, whether it's rioting or anything else. Everything is justified if it is... If you say... The real problem with the world is oppression and not sin. And so we have to ask ourselves, what gospel are we going to preach? It's not to say that there isn't oppression in this world. It's not to say there isn't injustice that needs to be addressed. It does need to be addressed. It needs to be dealt with appropriately. But there is a wrong way to actually address those things And we see in our world that people are beginning to embrace a theology that isn't biblical. You can't find it in the scriptures. But what you do find is that the real answer to injustice and oppression is for people to be saved, for people to be born again, for for people to be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit so that they be in loving people, loving their neighbor as themselves and and loving others graciously and, and not persecuting and not oppressing people. Um, that is the true answer. And so the whole idea of the death of Christ is so crucial to the, the very liberation that people are talking about. But it comes through Christ. Well, another major point of the apostles' uh, proclamation, obviously, and we see that on the day of Pentecost, is the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead as an able and willing Savior to offer forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life to all. And we see that reflected in Acts 2. We also see that reflected in Luke 24. So where Jesus is appearing to his disciples, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so um, the implications of this is there is life after death. Uh, Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus did what he said he was going to do. God accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Death could not hold Jesus because he was righteous, and Jesus is an able and willing Savior to those who trust him. It answers the question, um, was Jesus really who he said he was? Did he really do what he said he was going to do? And the resurrection proclaims that wonderfully. And as godly mothers, you want to teach your kids that there is a resurrection of the dead, that this life isn't all that there is, that there is a life after death. And it matters whether or not you're trusting in Jesus. Um, 
our world is very, very materialistic. And because uh, people don't think there's a God, people doubt whether or not there's any life after death, it makes what happens here and now very, very important. If this is, if you only go around once in life and you've got to go for the gusto while you can, it makes what you have and what you don't have here and now very, very important. Um, someone has um, talked about a thought experiment and said, let's say there's a button in front of you. And if you push this button, all the people that have a median income and less would immediately have all their real wealth doubled. Savings accounts, uh, property, everything. Overnight, they would be twice as wealthy as they were uh, prior to that. The one catch would be, though, all those who would be considered in the rich category would be ten times wealthier. Would you punch that button? If you can make everybody better off, but at the same time increase the inequality, so to speak, would you still punch that button? What might keep us from doing that? There could be a number of things, but one thing that could keep us from doing that is we would think that it is fundamentally wrong for someone else to have more than I do and actually to have a lot more than I do. Is that truly biblical, though? The person who is using the thought experiment says we have to realize that in a materialistic culture in which life is a zero-sum game, which means if you have something, it's really something I can't have because you have what is mine. If you have more than I do, then you must have something that really belongs to me because we ought to be equal. What does that kind of thinking encourage? Envy. How can you have so much more than I have? It doesn't foster love. It doesn't foster gratitude. It doesn't foster um, unity. It actually stirs up envy and hatred toward those who may have something more than we have. And the reality is there will always be someone who has something more than we have in various ways. And that's why the Lord Jesus could say, In Luke 14, he talked about when you invite people over for dinner, don't just invite your friends who can repay you by inviting you over to dinner, but invite those over who can't repay you. He says, because um, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The implication being, you don't have to get all that you can in this life. You're called to love and serve regardless of what you have or don't have, Because ultimately, the great reward is at the resurrection. That's when you'll receive your true riches. I'm going to go through this relatively briefly, but it's so important, and maybe you can go back over this and think through this on your own. But the Lord Jesus, who rose from the dead, um, continues his work, and his work is ruling and reigning over everything. Jesus reigns over all things as sovereign Lord and King for the good of his people and the glory of God. And he sent his spirit to bring people into his kingdom. And we just sang about that, if you recall. In Acts 17, it says, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them 
And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. One of the things that uh, godly mothers should teach their children is that Jesus is king. There's all kinds of implications uh, to this. It means someone is in charge, someone is working at a plan. There is a king who's over all other kings. There is an unseen kingdom. That kingdom is being filled. Jesus will keep his promises. And those in that kingdom do not have to be afraid. Um, One of the things that's going on in our culture right now is a big push, even more than ever, to look to government to meet our needs to look to government to help us in all the ways we need help and to make us happy in all the ways that we want to be happy. And there's no doubt there is a push to go toward full-blown socialism, communism, fascism, or whatever it may look like. But at the heart of it all is the government is God. All those forms of government basically say the government is your helper, the government is the source of your happiness. And there's this big push that we embrace the government in that way. C.S. Lewis uh, talked about um, the, the danger of being the willing slaves of the welfare state. He says uh, government consists of men and it's a dangerous thing um, because typically government will move in the direction of adding to its commands in one way or the other, thus saith the Lord. And it lies, and it lies dangerously. How does it lie? It says, we can meet your needs. We can answer your questions. We can, we can solve all the problems if you'll just do what we tell you to do. Now, there is a right obedience to government. But I'm talking about when the government goes beyond its proper function. He says, when you embrace government in a way that is inappropriate, and you begin to worship government as a god, you lose all personal privacy and independence. And he asks the question, is there any possibility of getting the super welfare states honey and avoiding the sting? And the answer is no. If you pursue the state's honey, you will get the sting. He says the modern state exists not to protect our rights, but to do us good or make us good. Problem is, he says, there's nothing left of which we can say to them, mind your own business. Our whole lives are their business. And if there's anything the last year has taught us is that there is the tendency of government to move more and more in the direction of encroaching on our privacy and our freedoms. And why do they do that? Because it's for our good. That's the argument. It's for our good. We know what's best. Just do what we say. Again, there is a right and proper honoring of government. That's Romans 13. If you read the book of Acts, you find out there were times when Peter said, we must obey God and not men, um, regardless of what that government might be. And so we need to teach our kids that Jesus is king. He's the king of kings. He's the president of presidents. He's the leader of leaders, and ultimately our allegiance is to King Jesus, not to anyone else. And as long as they're fulfilling their proper function under King Jesus, we support them, we pray for them, 
we will obey them. But once they begin to lead us in opposition to King Jesus, then we have no king but Jesus. We will not say Caesar is king. Well, last point is uh, one day there is going to be a heaven on earth. Jesus will return to rescue his people, judge all men, destroy evil, and usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and it goes on to say, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Jesus one day will be revealed for who he really is. All the world will see him as he is. For some, that will cause them to mourn because they rejected him. For others, that will cause them to rejoice because they've received him and entrusted themselves to him. Some people ask the question, why doesn't God do something about all the evil and suffering in the world? And the answer is, he will. And it started with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and one day it will be completed when Jesus returns. And as godly mothers, I would encourage you to teach your children about the city of God. That was what Augustine called heaven on earth when Jesus returns. The city of God, in a sense, begins when we entrust ourselves to Jesus and we experience life through Jesus now, but it's fulfilled when Jesus returns and we find fellowship with God face to face and we find him to be the only one who can truly satisfy our souls. The reality is that in this world, when you pursue heaven on earth apart from God, the only way to actually achieve that is to enforce uniformity. Many men have talked about the fact that it takes a totalitarian world government in order to achieve the kind of utopia that men are trying to achieve apart from God. The reality is that utopia will not be found apart from God through Christ. And now he calls us simply to to trust him. And God conquers through faith, not through that kind of force. Well, let me conclude just by saying this. C.S. Lewis talked about the fact that educationalists, those um, I guess he would call in the uh, worldly system of education, have tried to achieve, achieve wonderful things. But he would say that you need to thank God for what he calls the beneficent, obstinacy of real mothers. And he includes some other people in there, but he basically says, thank God for mothers who preserve the human race in such sanity as it still possesses. He's basically saying the role of mothers is incredibly important. Um, The government-funded educational system is not going to, um, especially in our day and time, Uh, feed into our children what God calls us to feed into them. And that's why it's so important that the teaching of kindness is on your tongues, 
and that that kindness is filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And especially at the heart of that is to teach and show the depth of God's love. And I'll just close with this. At the heart of the heart of what we talked about this morning is the love of God for us in Jesus that transcends anything and everything that we experience in life. And an illustration of that that we've talked about before is Corey and Betsy Tim Boom in the concentration camp. And Corey Tim Boom said how good God is. Uh, she said, I often hear people say how good God is. We pray that it would not rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. She said, yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. She said, I remember one occasion uh, telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. And Betsy said, no, Corey, he has not forgotten us. Remember his word, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Corey went on to say, may God grant you never to doubt that victorious love, whatever the circumstances. Now, Betsy, before she died, had a number of things that she hoped to see take place after the war. She hoped that there would be a place for those who had suffered in the concentration camps. She also hoped that there would be a place established to minister to the Germans who had actually inflicted the the persecution on the um, people. But she also wanted um, her and uh, Corey and others to tell everyone the story of how Jesus was the victor in the concentration camps. She said to Corey, tell people what we have learned here, that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. What do you want to teach your kids as godly mothers, godly fathers? What do you want to tell people? In light of the gospel, there is no pit that is deeper than the love of God. And we see that love in the face of Jesus as he extends his hands on the cross. That is the heart of the heart of the gospel, is the great, great love of God. Let's pray. Father, we just pray and ask that you would encourage all of our hearts as we just think about things that we've heard all of our Christian lives in various ways. And yet, Father, we live in a country where all of these things are being challenged in various ways. And we need to teach our children, we need to teach uh, other people, we need to teach ourselves, remind ourselves of the basic truths of the gospel, the basic truths of the apostles' teaching, that we might not be carried away either into deception or into despair. So we pray that you'd help us, that you'd encourage us, that you would deepen our own faith in the apostles' teaching and help us to hold on to it no matter what comes and help us to proclaim it in all kinds of ways. And may we know and believe the love which you have for us in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.